You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 4th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, Germany's Chancellor heads to China, accompanied by 12 blue-chip CEOs. As others try to reduce their dependence on Beijing, is Berlin heading in the wrong direction? Also ahead, could Ukraine be about to reclaim the crucial city of Kherson? Plus, we head to Zurich to review the day's papers. We find out why we should invest in Africa's art market. And then Andrew Muller brings us his weekly take on the news. We learned that chocolatiers Mars Wrigley had embarked upon some diligent market research, which had concluded that a great many people do not care for the bounty bar and that it will forthwith be banished, which will make this a difficult year for bounty hunters. That's all coming up on The Globalist, live from London. Before we begin, though, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. The Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has accused the Kremlin of resorting to energy terrorism. The former US President Donald Trump has given a strong hint that he may run for the White House again. And Israel's Prime Minister Yair Lapid has congratulated Benjamin Netanyahu on his victory in Tuesday's general election. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, the German Chancellor is in Beijing to meet the Chinese leader Xi Jinping. Olaf Scholz is there for just one day and this is the first Western leader to make a state visit to China since the pandemic. France's president Emmanuel Macron had suggested he come along too but no. Instead Herr Scholz will be accompanied by 12 CEOs from leading German blue chip companies. So what does this say about Berlin's priorities? Well Andrew Small is a senior transatlantic fellow with the German Marshall Fund's Asia programme and I'm delighted to say he joins me on Monocle 24. Good morning Andrew. Good morning. Um, so just explain to us, outline what is happening in these, today in, in Beijing. Who, who's going? So it's a small delegation of Schultz and his, his advisors, this business delegation, um, and a series of basically three rounds of meetings, um, around two hours with Xi Jinping, uh, an hour with the outgoing Premier, Li Keqiang, and then a meeting with uh, German businesses uh, in Beijing. And then that's pretty much it. This is a super short visit. And really the main focus of the visit is the meeting with Xi Jinping itself. Um, and just tell us a little bit more about what Olaf Scholz is hoping to get out of his meeting with Xi Jinping. I mean, he is literally there for 12, 24 hours, isn't he? It, exactly. And I mean, some of this is about COVID restrictions. Um, but, but really, I mean, the, the rationale for the trip uh, is this leader level meeting. And the, the logic that the Chancellor lays out is uh, this is a juncture in which Xi Jinping has assumed absolute dominance in, in the Chinese system. I think it's understood by everyone that the messages conveyed to the leader on, on the Chinese side now matter more than ever. Uh, some of the messages don't even filter up through other points in the system. And it's been uh, three years since the G7 leader um, has been able to have face-to-face meetings with Xi Jinping. So the the reason to go to convey some messages on um, Russia and China's handling of the war in Ukraine, on climate, head of the COP, 
um, and a few other areas, including Taiwan, including Xinjiang, including other things. Um, that, that's been the kind of pitch for why to go and do this meeting so soon after party congress in what would otherwise look like a political uh, endorsement. But there's clearly, as the business delegation indicates, an agenda that is expanding and deepening ties on the economic side at a time when, as your kind of introduction indicated, many in Germany, not just among other European partners and, and, and the US and others, think this is a time when, when Germany should be rebalancing this. So just tell us, we have, four, we have 12 CEOs going with him. I mean, I mean, who are these people and you know, what do they want to say to China? Well, I mean, I think that the question about the composition of this delegation is, and the criticism is, this looks mostly like a kind of old guard gang of the German companies that in recent months have still been deepening and expanding their investments in, in, in China rather than diversifying. And so the, the kind of the companies that are most exposed uh, to the Chinese market, including uh, the auto companies, um, uh, chemical companies. So you have BASF, um, you have Volkswagen, um, you have a couple of others outside that as well. I mean, you have Adidas, you have Siemens. Um, but I mean, this looks like the kind of delegation that would have gone along on a trip with uh, Chancellor Merkel in a past age. It doesn't look like a kind of new model version of what the economic relationship with, with China is supposed to, to look like on, on Germany's part. And I, I think that's been the criticism, again, within Germany um, as, as well as internationally about about what signal this is sending to uh, to China at this juncture. Because Germany's economic dependence on China is, is bigger than I suspect many people realise. I did not know that BMW, Mercedes-Benz and, and Volkswagen and BASF account for a third of EU investments in China. I mean, the, close, the ties are incredibly close, aren't they? Yes, and, and they've become more concentrated. And, and I think this is... What's gone on in, in recent years is that this, this used to be a very broad-based economic uh, engagement and, and set of trade ties um, between, between Germany and China. This was a vast suite of the Mittelstand companies, um, uh, a, a wider array of the big German companies as, as well. And what you've seen is a concentration uh, increasingly among this kind of smaller number of, of companies, um, the, the chemical companies and the auto companies in particular. Um, and Germany is in a very different position from, from most other countries in Europe in terms of the sheer scale of the economic relationship. And although it's tilted recently, it used to be one of the only countries that actually, uh, one of the few ones that didn't have a trade deficit with, with, with China. So there have been periods in which this economic relationship has been very beneficial, um, but the relative value has shifted. Um, how beneficial this has been even for some of the auto companies um, uh, has, has shifted too. Um, and the criticism, particularly with reference to what's gone on with Russia um, from, for instance, the German foreign minister is that these are companies that are looking to deepen their ties and may at a certain juncture then turn around and ask the German taxpayer to, to bail them out if the very predictable risks that we're seeing in the Chinese market um, come to pass. Um, and, and I think clearly everyone's risk analysis on, on China politically, geopolitically, the economic direction that Xi Jinping is, is taking has moved in a, in, a, in a direction of much greater concern in, in the last couple of years. It, and the question is whether they're really doing this open-eyed. The difficulty is, though, is that Olaf Scholz knows full well that a million German jobs are dependent on trade with China. To start to diversify and to start to withdraw would have very real consequences. Well, I, I think there's two elements to, to, to this. Um, I think there's, there's a question right now of um, what diversification actually looks like and the relative priorities 
um, for, for, for some of these firms and, and for the Chancellor right now. He did make a point of not going to China first, um, going to certain other partners in, in Asia on, on earlier trips, including Japan. There has been in his op-ed before he, he went out on this trip a signal that, China, uh, that Germany does need to reduce certain forms of risky dependencies on, on China. And I don't think anyone is arguing on the German side um, that all of this needs to happen quickly. I think the question is whether it's heading even now in the wrong direction, that at a juncture in which some level of rebalancing, his economics minister has proposed looking at outbound investment screening, some of these sorts of measures, will at least start tilting the balance in the coming years. Instead, this looks like a doubling down uh, on a lot of these commitments uh, right now, rather than trying to put this transition in place. And how much does this pose problems for Germany's relationship with the European Union at the moment? We have seen a, a, a straining in relations between France and Germany, at least, not least over over Ukraine. And this thought that Germany is acting unilaterally in an, in an economic sense, at least, is uh, is worrying, isn't it? Well, I mean, that's that's been the criticism of, the, of this visit, and, and and not just Germany. This has been a very chancellery led um, decision to go and do the trip and to do it in this in this manner. And um, this is not something that many of uh, Schultz's coalition partners were were particularly uh, keen on. Um, and indeed, this has not been a kind of coordinated European effort. There's no meaningful Europeanization of this trip. It wasn't coordinated with other partners in advance. There wasn't an attempt to kind of figure out how to craft the message and, and, and put on a united front uh, uh, ahead of the trip. I mean, there have been consultations, but you've seen the criticisms implicitly that um, Macron and Thierry Breton and certain other uh, Central and Eastern European leaders were making of this uh, trip at the recent European Council. And, and I think in the context, as you note, of some of the tensions between Germany and France, some of the criticism about um, uh, the, the sort of unilateral measures that Germany's been pursuing on on energy is that this trip has the quality of a, of a bit of a sort of Germany first um, exercise rather than something that um, is either collectively kind of conceived on the European side, let alone on the G7 side. What does this say about the Uni- European Union and its, its hope years and years ago for almost self-sufficiency? The fact remains is that we are all so dependent on trade with China for, to, to bring us up practically everything that we have in our homes. Um, it is that interesting thing that the European Union does need to rely on external partners such as China, perhaps not to the extent that Germany is pushing. But there is that need for the external, external force, isn't there? I mean, I think there's still an understanding on everyone's part, this is true for the United States as well, that there's going to be a continued uh, trade and economic relationship on, on a large scale uh, with China in, in, in the years ahead. And this isn't a dependency that runs uh, one way. I mean, there's, there's a lot that, um, that China needs from, um, from its international economic partners in, in this regard as well. And so no one's talking about a kind of comprehensive decoupling of the economies as, as Chancellor Schultz every now and then keeps warning about. I think the sense is identifying some of the really risky dependencies um, uh, that, that, um, and, and exposures that the German economy uh, might have uh, to China and to, to try and rebalance them, um, identifying some of the kind of specific areas um, uh, that, that will need to be rebalanced, um, in, including on, on, on some of the highly concentrated um, areas, including critical raw materials and things in, in which the Europe is genuinely dependent on China. In other areas, this is a question of um, you know, diversifying suppliers, diversifying markets. Um, we've had a very Sinocentric uh, model of globalization in the last period of time. I think a lot of 
um, uh, international economic actors are, are, are looking not to pull out of the Chinese market entirely, but but just to rebalance what that Sinocentricity has, has has looked like, and and I think that's 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 still um, for for Europe as a whole. Although economic ties will continue, I, I think that's the trend that we're, we're we're likely to see in the years ahead. Finally, what does China need from Germany today? Well, I mean, the fact that the trip is going ahead at all uh, in this context um, does uh, have the quality of a political uh, endorsement. Um, I, I, if you look at the leaders that have come to China in the immediate aftermath of the Party Congress, you've had. Uh, the Vietnamese um, uh, Communist Party General Secretary, China's close partner, Pakistan, their prime minister was there. Um, and this is a different kind of validation to have a German chancellor come in in, in these circumstances so soon after the sort of recrowning of, of, of Xi Jinping. So there's a political value to it in that sense. But really, China is looking to a certain extent, see if they can identify weak links in the Western alliance. Um, the very US-centric, very concerned about entering a kind of period of struggle with the United States. They want Germany and certain other Europeans to be differentiated as far as possible um, from from US strategy in that regard and from US alliance building and coalition building efforts. Um, And I think they'll want to use this as much as possible to try to peel Germany away and thereby, to a certain extent, peel Europe away from the United States. Andrew Small from the German Marshall Fund's Asia programme. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. You were the globalist. Portugal has plenty more to offer visitors than sun, sea and sand. With its vibrant cities, rolling vineyards and incredible history of design and a resourcefulness that always amazes. It's a fun place to eat. I mean, like, you just don't stop. It's sunny and it's warm and everything's outside. Like, it's great. Portugal, the Monocle Handbook is the first in a brand new series revealing our favorite places to eat, stay and shop from Lisbon to the Azores. Should you wish to stay a little longer, it will also help you find a neighborhood that could become your new base and introduce you to the people who have already put down roots. Head to monocle.com to find out more and prepare to see this fascinating nation afresh. Nine fourteen in Kiev, seven fourteen here in London. You with the Globalist, with me, Emma Nelson. Now, could the Russians be about to abandon the city of Kherson, the only major Ukrainian city that forces have captured intact? A Russian official has suggested troops may well retreat. It's also been reported that the Russian flag hanging in front of the regional administration has been taken down. Well, I'm joined by Dr. Jenny Mathers, who's a senior lecturer in international politics at Aberystwyth University. Welcome back, Jenny. Good to have you. Hello, good morning. Uh, good morning. Just Can you just tell us what we know about what exactly might be happening in Helsinki? Yeah, sure. So it's been very confused uh, recently. So we've got reports that the um, the Russian uh, sort of military has mostly withdrawn or maybe entirely withdrawn from Kherson uh, across the river. Um, we also have heard that um, the sort of civil authorities that the Russians brought in with them to administer the area have also withdrawn and that uh, local people have been told to evacuate. Um, and also, as you mentioned, the uh, the Russian flag has been taken down from from prominent places, possibly to avoid the humiliating uh, images of uh, Ukrainian troops taking down Russian flags and replacing them with Ukrainian flags. So all of this looks very much like um, a withdrawal, at least uh, a partial withdrawal to the other side of the river to more defensible positions. 
However, you know, Ukrainian sources have been saying, well, you know, there are also signs that the Russian forces might be reinforcing their positions uh, and also suggestions that this could be uh, potentially baiting a trap um, to try and ambush uh, Ukrainians as they come into the area. So it's all still very fluid and uncertain. Is this a trap? Well, this is what we don't know. I mean, this is what we're going to find out. I think it would be a very clever uh, tactical thing for the Russians to do. Uh, the question is whether they're actually capable of doing that with the forces that they've got. Um, given the deterioration of the Russian forces over you know, a lengthy period, um, it's much more likely, I think, that they are withdrawing to more defensible positions, uh, which they can hold rather than having the river at their back, where they have to uh, get supplies to, to come across the river to them. Uh, if they withdraw to the other side of the river, then um, they've got it in front of them uh, and also between themselves and, and the Ukrainian forces. So it, it is a more sensible military uh, thing for them to do. You mentioned the the fact that the the fact that the flag has gone removes the fame, you know, the, the potentially powerful, potent image of the Ukrainians removing a Russian flag from a Ukrainian building. How humiliating a defeat is this for the Russians if they are definitely leaving the city of Kherson? Mm, well, Kherson was the the only uh, city that they basically have been able to take since the twenty fourth of February invasion, and it was was occupied quite early on in that period. And of course, it is in a region, Kherson region, which is among the four regions of Ukraine that were recently uh, declared as annexed uh, by Putin. So it would be humiliating to have to abandon, you know, control of a city, to have to to withdraw. Um, that's true. But the new um, sort of Russian commander of of the forces in Ukraine has been laying the groundwork for that over the the past number of of days and weeks uh, by suggesting that you know sacrifices might have to be made in the short term uh, to you know increase or to strengthen Russia's position position in the long term. Um, so it does look as though, you know, they are preparing the ground uh, in terms of, of Russian uh, society's expectations about what might happen there. Um, any kind of defeat is not going to go down well with the Kremlin. What are we expecting to happen as a result? Well, this is very interesting because, um, you know, the, the conventional wisdom is that uh, Putin will not accept defeat and he will not back down. Um, but actually, he has backed down on a number of tactical points uh, just in the last week or so. So, for example, you know, with the grain deal, he first announced that Russia was pulling out and then announced, oh, no, Russia's coming back in again. Once it was clear that, that Turkey was willing to step in and, and provide, you know, sort of safe passage for those Ukrainian vessels. Uh, and similarly, we've had a lot of talk about, you know, nuclear uh, threats and dirty bombs and so on. Uh, but now the uh, UN Atomic International Atomic Agency uh, has gone in and, and found there's no evidence that Ukrainians are preparing a dirty bomb. Uh, and also, you know, the Russian Federation has issued a major statement about the dangers of nuclear war and the fact that it must never happen. So also looking looking like a stepping back. So I think we need to realize that, that Putin and his regime are both perfectly capable of uh, recasting the narrative narrative and, you know, presenting a, a, a different story to Russia. It's not uh, something that they would wish to do necessarily, but I think if they have to uh, present uh, defeat as uh, as something strategic and, and temporary, then, then I think they will. It does also suggest that Ukraine's counteroffensive is working. Yes. I mean, what we've seen very consistently over time is that the Ukrainians have been very uh, clever uh, in their use of force. They've been very, very strategic and, and very, um, you know, efficient in the way that they've targeted, um, you know, Russian military commanders and command posts, and they've targeted logistics, and they've targeted supplies uh, to try and, and deplete and wear down the Russians' ability to, to, to wage war. 
And of course, the Russians have not been able to replace that capacity. It's it's not capacity you can easily replace, especially the human capacity, the the highly trained and and skilled and and experienced commanders, for example. Um, you know, they've they've mobilized these hundreds of thousands of of civilians basically, uh, but they've had very little training. Uh, their their equipping is apparently very poor. And they're not going to be able to make a, a big difference uh, to the Russian military effort, at least not in the short term and maybe not in the medium term either. One thing that does need to be taken into consideration, though, is the fact that the retaliation that the Russians may enact may not be of a, a, a purely conventional military nature. We see um, what is happening with the grain deal falling to pieces at the moment, where there is this real threat of the Ukrainian grain supplies being unable to get through the Black Sea to go and feed millions of people in the rest of the world. We also see uh, um, Volodymyr Zelensky saying that Russia is engaging in in, in power terrorism insofar as he, the, the way that they're targeting infrastructure inside Ukraine. How worrying is it that this one defeat in Kherson could lead to far more wide-reaching consequences, not just for Ukrainians, but for the rest of the world? I think in in the war, what we're seeing is that Russia is using all of the tools that it has at its disposal, and you know, the, in in the absence of the ability to make um, you know military gains and significant military gains, it's turned to um, punishing the civilian population and attacking the civilian economy, and particularly attacking uh, power stations and and the ability of you know Ukraine to provide light and power and and water and heating and so on to its citizens, um, and that's very significant and, and very important, and it's something that obviously the Ukrainians are are busy working on and also appealing uh, to the international community for help on. Um, so I think that is is an area where Russia could do a lot of damage, is doing a lot of damage, and, and can do still more damage. Uh, and that's you know potentially very very important for not only civilian uh, econ- economy and society in Ukraine, but also for the the war effort. Um, in terms of of grain and, and exports, um, you know it's it's not easy for Ukrainian grain to get out. But I think what we've seen in recent days is that. Um, you know, Russia's ability to hamper that is actually limited. And it's limited by the willingness of other states like Turkey uh, to step in and to make sure that that grain does keep getting out. Uh, It's not getting out at a volume that we would wish to see it. uh, But nevertheless, you know, those supplies are still are still being exported. uh, And that's a, a very encouraging sign, I think. Jenny Mathers, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. Still to come on today's Globalist, we'll be heading to Zurich to go through the day's papers. We'll explore the African art market and its potential. And Andrew Muller will be here with his take on the last seven days. We learned that chocolatiers Mars Wrigley had embarked upon some diligent market research, which had concluded that a great many people do not care for the bounty bar, and that it will forthwith be banished, which will make this a difficult year for bounty hunters. Stay with us on The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world.
Now let's get the latest on the continuing civil war in Yemen. The US envoy Tim Lenderking is paying a visit to Saudi Arabia and the UAE this week in an effort to renew a fragile truce in Yemen because after a rare six months of calm, things are looking unstable once again. Bill Law is a Middle East analyst and the editor of Arab Digest. Welcome back, Bill. Good to have you with us. Thanks, Emma. Good to be here. Um, now, just arguably for all the right reasons, Yemen has not necessarily made a lot of headlines in the last few months because of this fragile truce. Just bring us up to date with what's been happening. Well, yeah, you're right. The the truce did bring uh, an, an aura of calm to, to Yemen, much needed aura of calm. Uh, the truce expired uh, at the beginning of October. It has not yet been renewed. And, and why is that? That's because the Houthis, which is the, the major rebel element that controls uh, most of the north of the country, and indeed much of the population of 30 million lives under Houthi control, they have put uh, uh, demands on the international, uh, internationally recognized government, the IRG, to, uh, to pay things like the salaries of their military people. And the IRG quite rightly said, well, no, we're not going to do that. So the Houthis really are the ones who are being intransigent and that's because they still are in the driver's seat. Uh, they, uh, the truce halted uh, an offensive in Madab, which is the oil-producing uh, governorate, the very important uh, governorate for that reason. And, uh, and, and, and the Saudis have stopped bombing, um, which meant that uh, ordinary Yemenis could begin to try and start to uh, pick up their lives and, and, and move towards some sort of uh, level of... Um, of, of, of survival, really. I mean, we have to understand that this is a country where uh, two-thirds of the population are in, in food insecurity, where uh, 23 million people require some form of humanitarian assistance. One of the things that the, uh, the truce did do, however, it did enable humanitarian aid to start to flow through and fuel as well. It's very important through the port of Hudeda. Uh, there have been some some skirmishes, but by and large, uh, the uh, since the truce expired, uh, it um, it's uh, it's been relatively quiet. So that's that's the good news. Uh, what is Lender King doing? Uh, well, Lender King is, I think, uh, going to go to uh, Riyadh and to Abu Dhabi and say, "Look, uh, uh, you guys said you were going to pony up two billion to the central bank, which is essential to try and get uh, get the country back to some form of uh, normalcy." And, and the Saudis and the Emiratis have yet to deliver on that. Indeed, humanitarian aid is only at 40% of what it needs to be to, to help the country. So there are you know, many, many big hurdles ahead. Um, there are lots and lots of issues. This is a country that uh, is riven by uh, factional fighting. Uh, the, the South, the Southern Transitional Council, which is a separatist entity, uh, is supported by the Emiratis. Uh, the uh, the various uh, groups uh, fighting against the Houthis are in various stages of, uh, of disagreement. They're tribal elements. The Houthis are really the only force that is, uh, you know, con- consistently holding together, although even within the Houthis there are some, um, some disagreements. But that gives them the, the strong hand. And uh, right now the... Um, the Houthis are not firing uh, missiles or drones in Saudi Arabia or UAE. Recall there were uh, several incidents, uh, indeed, uh, much earlier this year. I think three people were killed in Abu Dhabi. They've stopped that for now. So from a Saudi and Emirati perspective, as long as that continues, uh, you know, they can continue to uh, be not 
overly concerned about uh, what happens next. Uh, Hans Grunberg, who is the UN envoy, is the one who's done all the heavy lifting, really, in terms of, uh, of trying to get uh, the various parties to the peace table to try and, and move this forward. And, and uh, hopefully we will see a, a, a truce, a renewal of the truce coming sometime soon. But right now, as I say, the, the, the Saudis are in the driver's position and are in no rush to, uh, to uh, come back to the table and, and are putting uh, unacceptable demands, really, uh, to, to the IRGC uh, that uh, mean that uh, there's a kind of a, a static situation right now in the country. Bill, you, you, you've just described an incredibly complex situation inside Yemen with international players all having their say and being entirely influential. This is not a new thing for this conflict in Yemen. What is quite new is the difficult relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia. Will the arrival of the US envoy, Tem Lender King, have any influence at all over Saudi Arabia? Well, yeah, that's a good question. I think that... Uh, uh, the Saudis can say to the Americans, can say to Linda King, uh, look, uh, you know, we've stopped the bombing. You were complaining to us about the bombing, so we've stopped that. Uh, Linda King can counter with, well, come on, can you can you pony up uh, w- what you said you would do? And uh, and and uh, perhaps that begin begins to be a basis for uh, reconstructing some of the uh, relationship uh, between the Americans and the Saudis. Although I think it's important to say that, uh, you know, underlying all of the tensions that is going on between them, there still is a, a basic uh, relationship that is not, is not going to change fundamentally. Um, you know, it, it's there, and, uh, and, I, and I think that's, that's recognized on both sides. Uh, will Lender King have an impact? I suppose that's the interesting question. The Saudis, if the Saudis treat Lender King with um, some degree of uh, disinterest, then I suppose that speaks about the uh, deterioration of the relationship. Again, I think from the point of view of the Yemeni people, it's important that Lender King, who, you know, to be honest with you, has been kind of missing in action for a lot of this. I mean, he was he was charged by Joe Biden to go in and try and sort Yemen out. Um, you know, he. Um, he needs, I suppose, he needs to show something uh, um, on on his side, and and hopefully that would be uh, something as as uh, as concrete as as getting the Saudis and the Emiratis to uh, follow through on their commitments uh, to uh, get the, the the money to the central bank in Yemen. Finally, but what has changed in the last few months, however, is the war in Ukraine, and we have seen the Iranians who back the Houthis, and the Saudis who don't back the Houthis, um, coming together in in support or or you know not non condemnation of what Russia is doing in Ukraine. How does that change things? Yeah, well, it's interesting because the Houthis have had uh, several military parades uh, and uh, showing a lot of new weaponry, and, and some of us are clearly identifiable as Iranian weaponry. Uh, the Iranians. Uh, do support the Houthis, as you say. The Saudis and the Iranians, um, you know, are are you know from a Saudi perspective, what what they would like to do is to calm things down with Iran. So it's not in their interest to stir things up and to show any sort of overt support for the uh, West's uh, support of the, the war in, in Ukraine. Um, for Yemen, I mean, once again, with everything else that's going on in the world, the the risk is that Yemen is forgotten 
for all the wrong reasons, because we still have this huge humanitarian crisis that needs to be addressed. And, and, and if, and if the, uh, the efforts to get back to a truce just drag on and on and on with those solutions, then, then because this is such a heavily armed country, uh, you know, and young, and young men, the only way they can get money is, is to go out and fight, then yeah, things will break out again. And, uh, and, and that's the concern. And I think that's the anxiety. Bill Law, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle 24. The time here in London is 7.32. You with The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A quick summary now of the latest headlines. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has accused the Kremlin of resorting to energy terrorism following Russia's attacks on the Ukrainian supply network. Zelensky added that large-scale Russian missile attacks had left millions without power. The former US President Donald Trump has given a strong hint that he may well run for the White House again. Mr Trump told a crowd at a Republican campaign rally in Iowa that he would probably do it again in 2024. It comes as the US prepares to hold mid-term elections. And Israel's Prime Minister Yair Lapid has congratulated Benjamin Netanyahu on his victory in Tuesday's general election. Mr Lapid said he'd called his rival to wish him luck and tell him he'd ensure an orderly transition of power. This is the Global Stay tuned. It's Friday, which means it's time for Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, with his roundup of the last seven days. Here's what we learned. We learned this week what Russia is really fighting for in Ukraine, and apologies to any long-suffering parents presently experiencing symptoms triggered by the music playing behind this bit. If it is any consolation, we learned that Russia is broadly on your side, and we learned this via a sensible, thoughtful, measured, and in no way completely unhinged statement from Russian MP Alexander Kinstein. Mr. Kinstein, we learned, is chair of the Duma Committee on Information Policy and Communications, and, we must be clear on this, not in any respect a paranoid halfwit. For we learned that Peppa Pig, cheerful, animated, porcine preschooler, is, in fact... The squadron leader of a psychological operations commando unit intent on turning your children gay. We turn now to some of Mr. Kinstein's logical, sober and not even slightly ridiculous statement as will be voiced by Monocle 24's logical, sober and not even slightly ridiculous statement's desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Peppa Pig, seemingly a very well-known cartoon. In one episode, a polar bear is drawing a portrait of her family and says, I live with my mommy and my other mommy. LGBT is nowadays a tool of hybrid war. Thanks as always for taking the time, Fernando. We know you're busy with the hybrid war and whatnot. This, of course, was not the first time we had learned of the chilling and subversive subtexts of Peppa Pig. A couple of months back, Federico Moliconi... Molly Coney, 
culture spokesman of the Brothers of Italy, also invade against Peppa Pig's polar bear neighbours, solemnly, earnestly and not remotely idiotically declaring that we cannot accept this gender indoctrination. And his party are now running the country, which is heartwarming. But we should remember, of course, that Peppa Pig did have one staunch ally she could always count on among European conservatives. I was, well, it's fact, I was a bit hazy what I would find at Peppa Pig World, uh, but I loved it. Peppa Pig World is, is very much my kind of place. Who will speak for Peppa Pig now? Ooh, I can't wait to see where this goes. <laughs> that was a rhetorical question. We don't really care all that much. We also learned this week, and we think this just about works, of a mutiny on the bounty. Ship's company! I'm taking command of this ship. Mr. Fry, I'll have the keys to the arms chest. Not that kind. Indeed, we learned that this particular revolt was not against Lieutenant William Bly of the Royal Navy, later Governor of New South Wales, where he was eventually on the receiving end of another insurrection, but we digress, but against a chocolate-covered coconut confection. We learned that chocolatiers Mars Wrigley had embarked upon some diligent market research slash pre-Christmas attention-seeking, delete as applicable, which had concluded that a great many people do not care for the bounty bar, and that it will forthwith be banished from the celebration's mixed chocolate tubs traditionally brought to your yuletide lunch by relatives who did their Christmas shopping at the petrol station. Which will make this a difficult year for... Bounty Hunters. In British politics, meanwhile... No, don't. No, no, no. Please don't. Don't hear it. Oh, God, Andrew, no. We learned of the next step in the glorious career of Matt Hancock, COVID-19-era Secretary of State for Health, one-time star of very arguably the least interesting sex scandal in British political history, now disregarded backbencher. We learned that tending to the concerns of his constituents in West Suffolk is not quite sufficient to fill his days, and that he has accordingly signed on for the next season of tedious reality programme, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. This will, of course, be a radically different milieu for anyone who has come up in British politics to explore, as one of those environments is a merciless bear pit whose wretched inhabitants are compelled to commit serial indignities until such time as a bored or irritated public votes to eject them, and the other is a game show. Champagne satire. We learned, however, that Hancock had reasons for embarking to the badlands of Australia, reasons far, far nobler than the 300 grand he is reported to be trousering for his participation. In a newspaper editorial, Hancock kicked off by declaring that he had not, quote, lost my marbles or had one too many drinks, a clarification traditionally vouchsafed by people who have lost their marbles or had one too many drinks. Hancock insisted that he was somehow doing it for democracy, as will now be read by Monocle 24's entirely plausible justifications desk chief, Carlotta Ribello. Politicians like me must go where the people are. 
particularly those who are politically disengaged. We must wake up and embrace popular culture. Rather than looking down on reality TV, we should see it for what it is, a powerful tool to get our message heard by younger generations. While we will at this time rise above swinging at the powerful tool Freudian slip contained therein, we will not rise above relaying the somewhat equivocal reaction of the deputy chairman of Hancock's own local Conservative Party Association, Andy Drummond, which will also be read by Carlotta as she's sitting here anyway. I'm looking forward to him eating a kangaroo's penis. Quote me. <laughs> you can quote me on that. And indeed, we have. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. Thank you very much indeed for that, Andrew. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle 24. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. a.m. in Zurich, which is where we head now for today's newspapers. And I'm delighted to say the broadcaster and journalist Juliet Lindley is standing by at Dufourstrasse 90. Good morning, Juliet. How is Zurich? Good morning, Emma. Zurich is great. It's been missing you. When are you coming again? As soon as I possibly can. Are you armed with a matcha latte? Two of them. Let's begin. What's (laughs) happening in the papers? Let's start with Swiss news. So I've got Corriere del Ticino up and it's all over the Swiss papers, really. And it's about Swiss neutrality and Germany. So Bern is again rejecting appeals from the German government to allow it to re-export Swiss-made ammunition to Ukraine. So citing the principle of equal treatment and neutrality, uh, economics, Prime Min- economics Minister Guy Parmelin said on Thursday that as long as Ukraine is involved in an international armed conflict, Switzerland can't agree to Berlin's request for the transfer for of war material of Swiss origin to Ukraine. So it's the second time this year that the German Defence Ministry is seeking the green light from neutral Switzerland and it's to send 12,400 rounds of Swiss-made ammunition that was purchased, by the way, decades ago by Germany. And they want to send it to Kiev for use in German anti-aircraft tanks. So the Ukrainian Defence Forces want the ammunition to shoot down cruise missiles and kamikaze drones fired by Russian forces. But according to Swiss law, Emma, exports of war material must be refused if the country of destination is involved in an international conflict and countries that buy Swiss arms need to request permission from the Swiss if they want to export them. So that's what's on the Swiss plate uh, today, yesterday, especially today. And the Alpine nation is very much sticking to its guns, so to speak. But at the same time, the Swiss cabinet yesterday reiterated its commitment to peace and security in Ukraine by referring to a 100 million franc financial aid package it's just announced for Ukraine. This is such Emma. a tricky situation that, that Switzerland finds itself in because the rest of the West is, is imploring Switzerland um, to, to not abandon its neutrality, but to see what is happening and recognise what is happening. And it, there's been loads of criticism of Germany for not stepping up fast enough. So it's ironic now that Germany is now pressuring Switzerland. That's it. That's it. What else is happening in the papers? 
Should we move to Italy? So, as you recall, two weeks ago, we had our first female prime minister sworn in, and she's Giorgia Meloni, and she has just made her first trip abroad, and she chose to make it to Brussels. So she's, beating, she's been meeting the EU's top brass in Brussels, showcasing, if you will, her commitment to Europe. So the rightist leader said she wanted to send a strong signal that Italy is keen to collaborate, participate, and defend its national interests within the European dimension. And Emma, you'll remember that she caused a lot of hackles to be raised before coming into office with her anti-European rhetoric and firebrand nationalism. But yesterday in Brussels, correspondents are saying she was different. She was happy with her meetings with the EU commissioner and the head of the European Parliament. And it was clear that the new Italian leader is aligned with Europe, at least on Ukraine, and is standing firm on Russian sanctions. Now that said, as the new recession looms and the energy crunch bites, if you will, Emma, the EU is wary of campaign promises on social spending, uh, tax cuts, made by Giorgia Meloni and clearly financial instability in Italy is feared by men in Europe but we should get a clear idea of the path to Italian government plans that that will be taking place later today. Meloni is presenting her new public finance targets back in Rome so let's stay tuned for those updates. It's an interesting it's it's such a tricky path that that Italy has to tread now as well because it's because Giorgia Meloni went to Brussels she has this meeting with uh, the EC President Ursula von der Leyen she meets everybody everybody says these are very frank exchanges. We always know what that means. But they're very positive as well. But then she also has to go back to Italy and say, oh, and by the way, you know, the EU is 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 a, is a problem. Well, I'm not sure that it's so much that she's going to have to say that the EU is a problem. I think um, everyone is hoping that she will stay on course with the position mm. of Italy within the EU. And she has clearly sent a sign that she is going to be. It is. In, in, insofar as the, the European Union relationship is problematic for her far-right Eurosceptic supporters, who she gathered in, with, <laughs> with such enthusiasm yeah, yeah. before she ended up uh, being in charge, of, uh, in, in charge of Italy. And it, it's, a, it's a problem internally for her own party, isn't it? Yes, indeed, indeed, for her coalition, for sure. And that's why you have so many skeptics saying, we wonder how long she actually will stay in power. Right. I know you're a big fan of papal stories. <laughs> I know you're a big fan of either goats or papal stories. No, so <laughs> Who isn't? Who doesn't love a goat and papal story? Um, I know we haven't got any goats in, but you might have no a papal goats? story. Pope Pope Francis is on an official trip to Bahrain and it's only the second by a pope to the Arabian Peninsula, Emma, and it's a visit aimed at improving ties with the Islamic world. But speaking alongside King Hamad of Bahrain, the pontiff drew the attention of the international media yesterday by speaking out vehemently against the use of the death penalty, which is still in force in the Gulf nation. Clearly, his words causing a lot of carry a lot of weight. And he made a point of saying specifically in his speech, the right to life in includes those being punished whose lives should not be taken. Now, it's perhaps no coincidence that families of death row inmates in Bahrain had, in fact, previously sought help from the Pope in their bid to have uh, their relatives freed, and they'd urged Francis to speak up for political prisoners during the trip, which he did. Speak up he did, in fact, uh, and activists are calling his speech historic. The king, he spoke up too, and he said that uh, his country protects the freedom of all faiths to worship and rejects religious discrimination. So he took that line, and indeed, uh, Emma, the Muslim-majority nations 
160,000 Catholics are indeed allowed to worship publicly and to attend Mass, which is not the case, for instance, in Saudi Arabia. So that said, the Pope's visit is certainly drawing attention to the country's human rights record. Um, the, the UN has long criticized Bahrain for its uh, detention conditions and how it conducts trials, and drawing attention to its tensions between the Sunni-led government and the Shiite community, which led the pro-democracy protests during the Arab Spring back in 2011, which Bahrain quashed with Saudi and Emirati help. And with the trip lasts four days, so we'll have more updates on your favourite papal topic in the coming days. Thank you for that, Juliet. That was Juliet Lindley in Zurich. You're listening to The Globalist. Let's take a look now on The Globalist at the day's biggest business stories. I'm delighted to say our business editor, David Hadari, looking cosy and smart. Good morning. Hello. Dressing up for the uh, the November weather, coming in and to tell us about what the biggest business stories are. What have we got, David? So we've got uh, the first big story that will be on all the front pages today is the Bank of England raising interest rates by the most in, in 30 years, I think. So tell us a little bit more about um, the circumstances. I think many of us are, are aware of it, but globally, where does this sit and what the implications are? So it's the sort of same thinking as central banks around the world who are raising the cost of borrowing to try to incentivize consumers to keep their money in the bank, not spend it, and take the heat out of the record inflation we've been seeing, particularly in Europe, but also elsewhere. You know, the Bank of England's raise comes after the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank announced their own rate raises uh, uh, last week and this week, uh, all for similar reasons, although the ECB and the bank are contending with uh, an energy crisis too. So it's all fun and games. Where does this end? I mean, people, are, the, the, the warnings that we were being all given yesterday was in here in the United Kingdom that we are entering what could be a two-year-long recession. Absolutely. So it depends on who you listen to, but uh, with British interest rates, uh, the Bank of England has sort of signalled that, that that they may not go as high as, as investors have uh, accounted for. Andrew Bailey, who's the governor, uh, said that rates may not need to raise, rise much further to bring inflation back down to its 2% target, which is uh, typically the sort of Goldilocks level for central banks. And in doing so, he's actually diverged from the, from the view of American uh, central bankers at the Federal Reserve who think they have to be much more aggressive in order to get inflation down. It is. It's, it, it's a diversion here, isn't it? We have the Bank the, the, the bank of England here is departing from the Federal Reserve. Tell us a little bit more about that. So uh, the analogy most people use for central banks controlling a uh, monetary policy is that of a driver in a car. So right now, the economy is moving too quickly, or in other words, inflation is too high. But they want to raise, in- so they're raising interest rates to slow down that inflation, which is a bit like pressing on the brake but break too hard, and you risk grinding to a halt, uh, sending the economy into recession. And the Bank of England uh, unusually gave prominence to two scenarios yesterday in its guidance, uh, rather than one. Uh, the first one, if they aggressively raise rates and they could send the UK into its longest recession, I think either since the Second World War or possibly ever. But if they end rate rises sooner uh, than many had expected, that the pain might not be quite as bad, we'd still have a recession, but perhaps not for as long uh, as uh, in the other scenario. And um, investors will be looking for further signals going forward that they're going to pursue that path. 
Let's move uh, to COP27. It all Everybody starts to gather in the next couple of days um, for an event that, well, a lot of us are sort of questioning what the purpose of this is going to be, the, the climate change big get-together in Egypt. Absolutely. So, um, obviously, we had uh, Glasgow in November here last year, or in the UK, um, and uh, in many ways... This COP27 in Egypt will pick up the threads that were left dangling at the end of uh, last year's conference. And you should expect to see some of those topics rear their heads again. Most of them are revolving around money. There's money to help countries recover from the effects of climate change rather than just prepare for it. There's the establishment of a global carbon trading market uh, or emissions trading market. And coal will also be a sticking point because right at the death last year, you might remember Alok Sharma's tears uh, when I think it was uh, India and potentially China as well refused to sort of commit to phasing it out. And there's no sign that India and China are going to face it out anymore this time around, is there? Not exactly. I wouldn't I wouldn't bet on much cooperation this time around, even compared to last year. So according to a report from Reuters, some of the um, biggest titans of finance in Europe and the US uh, are, are quite pessimistic around our nation's ability to come together this year. So the biggest difference is obviously that Russia this time last year hadn't launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine and upended global energy markets and uh, hadn't started qu- selling quite as much uh, cheap Russian oil to China and India this time a year ago. Okay, let's move finally uh, to layoffs in the tech sector. Um, I think Elon Musk has just fired half of Twitter. I think from what I've noticed on the internet, um, and there's quite a lot of joy from the former Twitter employees as well, but there is, uh, he's not alone in sort of um, squeezing the workforce in quite a lot of tech companies. You're absolutely right. I mean, you wouldn't know there are other companies in the tech industry. You know, from the avalanche of coverage we've seen of uh, Twitter and Elon Musk's psychodrama, but uh, there are other companies and they are cutting jobs. Unfortunately, uh, one of them is Stripe, the online payments platform, which actually did get some of its early money from Elon Musk. And another company doing so is the ride-hailing app Lyft. Both of them have cut jobs this week to cope with rising costs and higher interest rates. And that seems to be part of something broader in the sector as well. Um, Amazon has announced a hiring freeze in its corporate jobs. Uh, and when you have as much money as Amazon, that's pretty noteworthy. So it seems as though these companies are bracing themselves for quite a rough patch in the economy. David, thank you so much for joining us. That was our business editor, David Hadari. You're with us on The Globalist on Monocle 24. Finally, as recessions loom and traditional areas to make your money become harder to find, step forward at the African art market. Now, a new African art seminar series and auction run by ArtSplit begins today. And to tell us more, I'm joined by Giles Pepiet, Director of Modern and Contemporary African Art at Bonhams in London, who happens to be in Lagos. Good morning, Giles. Good morning. Good morning so, to you, Emma. You have been doing this for a very, very, very long time. So what is this about the African art market that, that everybody needs to know about now? Um, well, I think one of the, the main things is that it is growing at an extraordinary rate. Um, and it is probably one of the fastest growing sectors in the art market at the moment. As you say, I've been in this business for quite some time. And when we started sales about 15 years ago of contemporary African art, it was a very small market. 
but now, um, I mean, we sold a, a painting recently for about, well, it's not a huge amount, but it's one and a half million, which is quite a decent sum. And that would have, you know, one wouldn't have thought of doing that 10 or 15 years ago. So it's a very fast growing market. It's very exciting. So what should we mm. be looking out at? Not just because of its lucrative nature, but also because of its beauty. Well, that's it. I mean, I think any uh, buyers at auction or buyers anywhere really have had two reasons for buying. Some buy solely for what might call aesthetic reasons because they are true collectors and love the works. I will say others buy with a, a slightly bigger eye to the investment potential. Um, and I think what you buy is really based upon the reasons for, for, for buying it. But certainly you can, if you're fortunate and you have to be fortunate and clever, you can buy very well. And then if you hold on to it for a bit of time, maybe five or 10 years, if you decide to resell it, you can, you can make quite a large sum of money. Africa is a diverse and large mm. place. Where should we be looking in particular? Okay, so Nigeria is probably the, the, the biggest market. Nigeria and South Africa, the two largest markets. I'm in Lagos at the moment and speaking at this seminar today. And the reason I'm here is because, as I said, it is the largest market and produces some extraordinary artists, uh, some contemporary artists, and also, going a little bit further back, some of the artists that are working here in the what we might call the modern era, the post-war era, uh, and their works are very highly prized at the moment. Give us a couple of examples. Okay, so the, probably the best-known example is a, an artist called Ben Nwamru. He was a Nigerian gentleman who was working in the 60s and 70s and just into the 80s. As I said, we sold a work of his for about one and a half million a few years ago. Uh, we had an auction a couple of weeks ago. We sold a few for about a quarter million in there. And he is someone who is very highly collected. He's regarded as a very important Nigerian artist, probably the father of Nigerian art. But going more recently, um, one can look at other parts of West Africa, Ghana, for example. There's a very well-known contemporary artist. He's a young chap, a chap called Amoko Brafo. And probably, I don't know, just before COVID, in sort of 18, 19, his works were fetching maybe 10, 20,000. Uh, one sold recently for 800,000. So there is the full range, really, of, of both modern and contemporary. And if, and I, if you pick... And yeah, sorry. If, sorry, no, but if uh, sadly, as we're on the radio, you're going to have to describe what it looks like. I mean, if ah. I were to buy myself a piece of work by Amoko <laughs> Buafu, what would it look like on my wall? Okay, so the work that I was referring to is one called, uh, it's called the, the Swimsuit, I think it was called, and it depicts uh, uh, an African lady uh, lying on uh, a, a lilo, I think it is, on a swimming pool, and it's painted in, in very vibrant colours, uh, and he has a, a characteristic, um, very painterly uh, technique where you can see the brushstrokes very clearly, which is lying there with this beautiful uh, swimsuit with lemons on uh, and on a, 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 a sort of white lilo in a, in a blue pool. Very colourful, very strong colours as one expect from a, uh, a West African work. But he is someone who is, is very highly prized in the art market at the moment. Giles Pepiat, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us on the line from Lagos. And that's all we have time for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests and to our producers, Rhys James, Laura Kramer and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researchers are Lillian Fawcett and Emily Sands and our studio manager was Steph Chungu. After the headlines, more music on the way. The briefing's live at midday here in London and The Globalist is back at the same time on Monday. Hope you can join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you for listening. Have a great weekend. 